millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. An attack on an Irish government target allegedly called off at the last minute. I don't know what this group is really, but it involves the Red Hand Commando, the UVF, UDA. It's an umbrella group of people who have been involved in appalling violence in our history. Serious concerns about the future of the Loyalist ceasefires. I have indicated that if the conditions that predicated the ceasefires are removed, people like me have no ability to control events. Calls for the secret intelligence service MI5 to target the UVF. I came to London on Wednesday to ensure that government at the highest levels here was aware of the provocation. Loyalist paramilitaries are in the spotlight. The PSNI says it's aware of the letter which predicted what the writer called dire consequences if Dublin government ministers visited Northern Ireland. A letter from Loyalist groups says support for their ceasefires may be weakening. The message from the Loyalist Communities Council has been interpreted by some as a veiled threat of potential violence. It also carried a clear warning that Irish government ministers shouldn't visit Northern Ireland. It's understood the letter was agreed with and supported by the leaderships of all the main Loyalist paramilitary groups, including the UDA, the UVF and the Red Hand Commando. In this episode of The Bell Tell, I'm joined by our security correspondent, Alison Morris, to find out what's happening behind the scenes in loyalism. So in terms of the situation in loyalism, what is the latest? You know, I think that a lot of people are, at this point in time, surprised that it has been reported as it is. But for someone like myself, he works in, in this sort of crime and security field. This is something I have seen happening over a protracted period of time. In fact, you could go right back 10 years ago to the flag protest and say it's been happening since then. Look, there, there is discontent among sections of the working class loyalist community. In some ways, we understand what a lot of that is. It's the same issues that exist in any working class community. You know, they feel that they're being left behind. But I do think that over time that they have been made to believe or that there's a perception that is somehow if you lived on the shankle, the person on the other side of that peace wall is doing much better than you are. When in fact, they're living in very similar social circumstances. There's that obviously that we had all the parading disputes, which were all more or less resolved. So all of that is always treated as a loss. And then there is a real lack of um, political direction that they've received. So you go back to the loss of David Irvine and people always say, you know, if David Irvine was here, things would be different. Well, we don't know what things would be like, but we do know that loyalism at that point had leaders. They had people like Gary McMichael, um, people like David Irvine, people like, you know, Plum Smith, 
who were at the forefront of those peace negotiations and helping them move along. But what we also seen is why nationalism really moved in behind Sinn Féin and made them a real electoral force. Loyalism couldn't get elected, you know, the PUP, they have a couple of councillors, but they've never really been able to make any real um, electoral headway. The, um, the UPRG um, and before that, you know, the, that sort of wing of the UDA were never able to get anyone elected. Instead, they're represented almost entirely at this stage by the DUP in terms of the councillors and MLAs. And I do think that, you know, the situation that that more militant loyalism and a lot of that can be traced back to the fact that there was, first of all, a lack of political direction and also that those politicians have, and, and it's a tactic that's used by people at, at election time, they make everything sound like a loss because angry people vote and angry people will come out and vote. And instead of preparing people for the changes that have happened, and our world has changed dramatically, not just on a global slate, but also Northern Ireland has changed dramatically since the peace process and everything has been, at the, to this point, has been seen as a defeat and the trajectory of where we're going in terms of the conversations around a united Ireland or a future border poll, they say that the trajectory is only heading one way and that they're going to be forced into something they don't want. If you take all that in context with Brexit, and, you know, I was speaking to other journalists about this the other day, the day I watched a news report and David Cameron came out and announced that there was going to be an EU referendum, did I believe that day that I would be sitting here talking about loyalists threatening to break their ceasefires as a result of Brexit? Did any of us predict that Brexit could lead us to this place? We knew that Brexit caused problems on this island because we were going to have a land border, but did we really think it was going to cause those kind of problems? And so Brexit and the protocol has been ramped up into something that as far as loyalism is concerned, unionism in general clearly has problems with the protocol because we can see that in the way that they voted in the, in the May election in terms of, of you know, those numbers that got behind, I think it was over 200,000 people voting for the DUP. And when you count in the TUV and those votes, those anti-protocol votes, there's clearly an issue there. But for loyalism especially, I think they're almost treating us like the last stand. You know, this is the one thing that we can't let go that that betrayal, which was a British betrayal, let's face it, Boris Johnson said there'd been a border in the Irish Sea and then there was a border in the Irish Sea, that that is a step too far and that is being sold to working class loyalists as if we allow this to go ahead, this is a stepping stone to United Ireland. Very few people understand the Brexit withdrawal agreement. Very few people have read the text of that withdrawal agreement. You know, it's something as a journalist I was asked to speak about a lot and I struggle sometimes with the complexities of it. It's not an easy document to read. It is fairly impenetrable. But what people do understand is economic United Ireland. They recognise that. They recognise that Brexit is a stepping stone. So all of that has been used and loyalism itself, that leadership has grown older. So the people who would have been charged of those paramilitary groups at the time of the ceasefires are quite old now. They're old men and they're surrounded by much younger, much more militant men, some of whom had no role to play during the Troubles that have been too young. But they continued to recruit, so they have numbers of younger men around them. And I think that all of that together has brought us to the position we are now, which is one that I am quite concerned about. Support for the ceasefires waning. thats I think that's the phrase used. Now, if the IRA came out and said, support for our ceasefire is waning, it would be an international news story. And yet somehow, despite the, there's been some coverage of the LCC letter, the Loyalist Communities Council letter, etc. But essentially, 
they haven't that it hasn't gained an awful lot of an awful lot of traction. Not an awful lot of people are talking about it, but you are saying that it is a, something of real concern. It's something that I, it concerns me, and I, and it doesn't. I understand that there's people who think, well, look, if we give these people the attention that they are looking for, well, that's just going to make things worse. So let's not. And then there's others who would say, well, you know, how long are we going to sort of tickle the belly of of you know hardline militant loyalism and tell them that everything will be okay and we'll make everything better, and rather than stand up to them. You know, I can see in terms of those arguments that, you know, there's sort of validity in all of them. But what I would also say is, who is going to suffer at the at the end of this if it, these ceasefires break down? Who is going to lose their life? And I covered enough conflict and seen enough conflict in my time, and I have no desire to, you know, stand at the funeral of someone who's lost their life needlessly. So at this point in time, I do think that it is quite dire. That letter from the Loyalist Communities Council, last May I reported on a letter from the Loyalist Communities Council where they said they were withdrawing their support for the Good Friday Agreement. And at the time that actually got quite a lot of traction in the media. But there was also a sort of conciliatory tone in that. There was a sort of olive branch of, well, you know, we're prepared to talk and discuss this. The letter that was sent to the unionist leaders last week, there was very little in that positive that you could take from it. And just in case some of our listeners don't understand what it is, the Loyalist Community Council is a representative body, a legal representative body for Loyalist paramilitaries, the UDA, UVF, Red Hat and Commando. And they meet regularly with Loyalist paramilitaries and thus are authorised by Loyalist paramilitaries to make statements which represent the views of loyalist paramilitaries. I know that's slightly convoluted, but is that what we're talking about? If, if I'm assuming if I was living anywhere else, maybe even you know somewhere in the south of Ireland or, or somewhere in England, and I listened to this, I would think, what on earth did you just say? What is going on? Why is there a legal group that represents illegal groups? <clears throat> the Loyalist Par Communities Council was set up in 2015. It was in a, a, a big launch, a big high-profile launch for all the media there in the Park Avenue Hotel. Obviously, I was there. Jonathan Powell was there, a former advisor to Tony Blair. So that gives you the idea of the sort of gravitas that was placed on this organisation. We were told at the time that the Loyalist Communities Council was a group that was designed to help these organisations transition to dismantle the paramilitary structures and become basically like old boys commemorative societies that would maybe show up and have a commemoration in November on Remembrance Day that you know some of them would go into legitimate community work some of them would be given a hand maybe to get into gainful employment um, and also you know in terms of lots of other things that they were asking for at that time. Since then it has transitioned quite bizarrely almost into a political lobby group which makes not just you know the, the members of it here are perfectly legal. It's not a legal organisation who meet with loyalist paramilitary leaders to take a sense of how they're feeling. They also meet with senior government figures. You know, remember Arling Foster quite openly saying she met with the Loyalist Communities Council when she was later the DUP. Geoffrey Donaldson has clearly had discussions at times with them. At one stage, the Loyalist Communities Council appeared in front of a Westminster Select Committee to give evidence in terms of Brexit. Um, so, you know, they are perfectly legal. But the, the statement that they put out, I'm just going to read... The line from that, that that you know set my alarm bells off. It said there are no circumstances in which joint authority would be tolerated, and any effort to impose it would inevitably have dire consequences for the progress made from 1994 onwards. And anyone listening to that, the significance of 1994 is that was in October 1994. The combined loyalist military command called their cessation of violence, called their ceasefires. And despite the fact that there have been internal feuds and fighting between them, they haven't returned um, or breached that ceasefire in terms of returning to what they were doing. They have had internal feuds 
locally. They still have their structures in place. There's sections of them that are involved in criminality. Um, but in terms of the, the breaking that ceasefire, that means something very different. And so that reference to 94 is something that should be taken very seriously. And also, they also said that the you know Irish visit ministers, Irish government ministers, should not be made welcome in Northern Ireland while the protocol remains in place. And that is not so thinly veiled threat, you know, to visit Irish ministers, given the fact that Simon Coveney, the Irish foreign minister, had to flee a peace building event earlier this year in North Belfast because a hijacked van with a hoax bomb, which was hijacked by the UVF and the Shankill, was placed in the car park of that event. So they're not just idle threats, they're threats which have the very, you know, real possibility of being carried out. And the chairperson of the LCC, David Campbell, um, has strongly defended those remarks in the media saying well what right do they have to be up here so it's it does seem that they thought out these remarks uh, can i ask you david what gives you the right to tell irish government ministers where they can go on this island well what gives irish government ministers the right to come to another country to misrepresent northern ireland's position and as a core guarantor of the Belfast Agreement to misrepresent that agreement and the principle of consent in European capitals, they have absolutely no right. It wasn't just a letter that I get the impression was written on a hoof. I think that there's been a lot of input from a lot of different people to it. And that David Campbell did. He went down to the BBC's Talkback programme and he defended those comments and he refused to back down from that, despite being very strongly challenged by the presenter of that programme. Um, and since then, we've also had a further letter from Billy Hutchinson, who is leader of the Progressive Unionist Party, which has links to the UVF. He is currently an elected councillor. He was, again, someone who, you know, was completely wedded to police to peace at the time. He was part of the negotiating team for the Loyalist paramilitaries during the peace process. And he said, basically, I can't control this anymore. You know, I don't want to live through it again. I'm on peace, but I no longer have control of this situation. And he's also saying that loyalists have been betrayed. And again, that's a very strong word. They have been betrayed, and I, I do understand how they say they've been betrayed, but they've been betrayed by the British government, and they've been, been betrayed, I suppose, by the people who they're most loyal to. I think their direct anger is being directed at the Irish government, but when you look at the betrayal, the betrayal was really obvious. Boris Johnson came to a DUP party conference. He stood there side by side. The DUP helped at Westminster, when they hold held significant power at Westminster, they helped by continually voting down Theresa May's deals to make her position as Prime Minister untenable, to get Boris Johnson into the position of Prime Minister because they felt that he was their man, that he was the person who was going to do what they wanted him to do in terms of Brexit. There would be a hard Brexit, but the border would be somewhere along the border between North and South. And he said to them, there will be no border in the Irish Sea, and then there was. I mean, that is a betrayal. But the, their anger isn't, doesn't seem to be directed at the British government, seems to be directed at elsewhere. My, my problem is that there's, there's a window here of opportunity where this can be stopped. And I don't think that there's enough people taking it seriously enough or actually attempting to get to the bottom of what exactly is going on. Is there, you know, the intent there to actually carry out these threats and attacks? Is there attacks going to happen? Who's going to be the target? And once we get to that point... Is there a coming back from that? With regards to attack, you've had a story, an exclusive story, which stated that loyalists were in the advanced stages, at least, of planning an attack on the Irish government. Can you tell us anything more about that? 
So we had a, a situation where we know that there's political instability at Stormont. There is no devolution, and right now devolution doesn't look to be on the cards for the foreseeable future. What was happening was we had the Taoiseach, Michael Martin, saying that Ireland, the Irish government would have to have a greater say in affairs during any you know, period of political instability. We had Mary Lee MacDonald, the leader of Sinn Féin, saying that there should be joint authority. There cannot be no return to the direct rule of, of old. And then we even had people like the Middle of the Road Alliance Party saying, well, the Irish government will clearly have more say in our affairs if we have no government of our own. And the SDLP also... Yep, the SDLP also saying that there should be joint authority and that Ireland should have a say in any controversial decisions that are made in the absence of devolution. And that appeared to massively trigger those people within loyalism who have the ability to cause violence. There was a, a, a window of, I think, about a day or two when, you know, members of the media were saying that the NIO is, is joint authority on the cards and they weren't answering that question. And in that vacuum, what I am told is that there was a meeting of senior loyalist paramilitary figures somewhere in County Antrim and the decision was to be made that there should be an attack and the attack was to be on an Irish government building. I think it was stressed it was a building, not a person. And that was in the very advanced stages of planning and it wasn't until the NIO released a statement saying that there would be no joint authority nor were there any plans for joint authority, that that was called off. And when we had the situation with Simon Coveney earlier this year, we were saying, you know, mass men, they hijacked a van, they made a man who believed he was driving a bomb. He went through that guy's life. He didn't know it was a hoax bomb, he thought it was a real bomb, to the car park where Simon Coveney was in the Hoven Centre that day. There is an ability there, and do, people shouldn't believe that, first of all, that loyalist paramilitaries haven't retained or haven't um, acquired weapons and that also that there isn't people within the ranks of those loyalist paramilitary groups who know how to make bombs because they did in the past and while, you know, they can decommission weapons, they can't decommission people's knowledge and the knowledge there still exists. Is there the will and intent to go for an all-out war? I clearly don't think there is. I don't think there's an appetite for that. But that doesn't mean that we can't have sporadic attacks and disruption. And, you know, there's a real real, real emphasis, I think, at this point in time on politicians to step in and to do something to try and calm that situation down before it gets any worse. Well, who, I mean, which politicians are we really talking about? Because I can't imagine that there's a single word that any nationalist could say uh, with regards to that. So we're really talking about at the end of the day, because I know Doug Beattie, for example, has been very strong about this, but... Is it really the DUP we're talking about? I think the DUP primarily, but also I do think that there are people within the Northern Ireland office and I do think that there are people within the British government who could also try and calm the situation down before it gets any worse. The issue that exists with the protocol exists solely between the UK government and the EU. There is nothing locally anyone can do about that. You know, if we had Stormont back up and running tomorrow, they would be able to negotiate a deal on the protocol. It can only be done between Westminster and the EU. And I think that they need to explain to those who are at the brink and talking about breach and ceasefires that they need to be given a breathing period to allow this to happen. They've had instability at Westminster in terms of who's the Prime Minister. I mean, let's face it, the EU for a while, first of all, they were negotiating with Boris Johnson who they didn't believe, they didn't trust would would um, honour any agreement that he made. Then Liz Truss, I mean, did anyone even think that you could negotiate a deal with her in relation to the protocol? Her tenure was so short. So we've only got it, you know, the, there's a new British Prime Minister. There needs to be time for the EU and for Rishi Sunak to try and hammer that out. And I think that the DUP could be relaying that back to within those loyalist communities a lot stronger and saying, look, let's give this time, let's see what they produce, let's see what they come up with. 
We have spoken before on the podcast about uh, the difference in approach to loyalist paramilitaries and Republican paramilitaries, and that is to say that MI5, the security service, monitors and acts against Republican paramilitaries. They don't against loyalists. Why is that? Primarily, their resource was dedicated towards distant Republicans, and that is for very obvious reasons. It is because they're considered a threat to national security. So I suppose the easiest way to break this down is if you are involved in drug dealing, criminality, <clears throat> and even murder of people within your own community, you're a domestic threat. You're not a national security threat. That falls to the PSNI and the Paramilitary Crime Task Force with it. If your target is someone wearing a uniform, well, then you're a national security threat. If you're targeting police officers, if you're targeting prison officers, if you're targeting you know, members of the British government or British government buildings, well, then you are then considered a national security threat, which obviously is what distant Republicans were. We've seen a massive MI5 sting um, where someone was a, a, an informant, Dennis McFadden, was bailed in with an IRA for over 10 years. That has dismantled them. And rightly, people are saying, and they say to me, well, why don't they just use the same tactics against the loyalists then and dismantle them? Loyalists were very, very heavily infiltrated during the conflict, during the troubles. We know that from various police ombudsman reports. You know, that is is uh, no longer something that is speculated, is proven in, in terms of some of those reports. But that was by special branch, you know, a, a, a sort of force within a force of within the RUC. That no longer exists. We do have C3, which is the sort of the PSNI equivalent of that. How heavily infiltrated loyalists remain in terms of that? Well, we do see quite a lot of arrests, drug arrests, um, and arrests in terms of criminality, but that hasn't managed to dismantle the structures of those paramilitary groups. I do believe that the attack on Simon Coveney during this year would have been a game changer because that immediately becomes, if you're threatening uh, a visiting dignitary from another jurisdiction, you are a threat to national security. And I do think that, you know, you would imagine that MI5 would have had to take that very seriously and would have had to then deploy resources that they've maybe been dormant for many years that they haven't used. But also, you know, the, the NCA are now operating, the National Crime Agency operating in Northern Ireland. Um, they have been, they're in, they're in charge of like civil recovery, so taking assets off people they believe are involved in criminality. And all of that together, we live in a very different policing landscape than we did back during the Troubles when there was talk, you know, that the loyalist paramilitaries were completely unaccountable, that there wasn't proper policing being done of them or proper oversight, they were being allowed to act with impunity. But we now have a PSNI, we now have a policing board, we now have an ombudsman. You know, we now have very different policing structures. You would imagine if there was a return to some kind of conflict that it would be managed in a very different way than it was managed then. But when I say this, this is all something that has to kick in after the effect, after something has happened. I do believe there's a window of opportunity to try and stop this. It doesn't mean going in and pandering to loyalists or pandering to threats to loyalists. It does mean simply calm intentions and saying, if the protocol is the main issue, we need to give space for the protocol to be resolved and to see what the British government managed to negotiate with the EU. To be slightly negative about it, there has to be something. That's a protocol or something like the protocol. Stormont seems dead in the water. Some commentators think that's it, that that period of is completely over and the Good Friday Agreement part of our history is, is, is now in the rear view mirror. With even moderate nationalists saying we need to move on from this current situation with joint authority. It is hard to see that loyalist anger will be a swage in the short term. 
You know, it was something I hadn't properly considered until recently. I was, um, it was actually a commentator, Brian Rowan, had said that, you know, that Stormont, as far as he's concerned, that that part of our, our time is done. And that now that the, the sort of unity debate, the debate around a border poll, whether that's going to happen in five years' time, that the two things can't run alongside each other. You can't have stable government in that conversation taking part in the same place. That wasn't something I'd ever really properly considered until now. Um, <clears throat> I do think that there's an opportunity, but it may require a massive renegotiation of our form of government. I do think that we've reached the end of mandatory coalition. It, it you know, it was never meant to last this long. Mandatory coalition was something designed um, unique to ourselves, unique to our situation for a conflict society in order to try and get us over that hump. And the, the idea was, you know, five years' time, six years' time, we will be a mature enough, grown-up, post-conflict society and normal politics will come into effect. But we're 25 years next year of the Good Friday Agreement. That didn't happen. The alliance are, are calling for a renegotiation of that so that you can have like a coalition of the willing, you know, a coalition that can be formed. And if you want to protest, you can stay outside and be in the opposition. Um, that is something that could happen, but I haven't heard any real support for that within the British government or the Irish government. And that's it will take those two governments as joint signatories to come together for that to happen. In terms of what the DUP will accept before they will go back into government, I think that that's where we are now in terms of the conversation. They're not going to get everything. You're not going to get your whole wish list. The protocol isn't going to go. What are they willing to accept as their bottom line? And more importantly, can they go back and sell that to their community? Because one thing I've noticed over the years is that the DUP specifically, unionism is sort of more general, but the DUP specifically are really bad at selling any kind of success. Everything's always a negative. I mean, in terms of such a small political party to say, we forced 27 member states back to the negotiating table and achieved this, you could sell that as a success. But we know, you know, in terms of that, they probably won't because they're not going to get everything on their wish list. Nobody does. And are they willing? The bottom line is, what are they willing to accept to go back or are they intending to go back at all? I know that there is one school of thought that thinks because now they're not the biggest party and they'd have to be deputy first minister, they really don't want to go back. Um, they deny that, of course, we have to. They do. They that. have said that they, they will uh, um, abide by the democratic will of the people. I'd like to think that that will happen because, you know, local people making local decisions is always much better. But in terms of, of the policing situation as well, you know, the police will tell you that all of that exists in a vacuum. And I think it'd be remiss before we end this to say that in Easter of this year, we had a, a commemoration in the, the graveyard in West Belfast and a, a mass ma man linked to the group Bugman O'Hearn read out a statement where he said that if there was any attack on the nationalist community from loyalism, that there would be there would be some sort of retaliation, that they would respond to that, that they wouldn't, I suppose in their words, leave their community defenceless. And then just more recently, the RSP, who are the political wing of the INLA, also says, look, we're willing to speak to loyalists about whatever their issues are, but also we're keeping a careful eye on the conversation and the language being used by that sort of armed militant loyalism. So if there is a return to violence and loyalists do attack someone, you can't expect that that would be used by those who were never wedded to peace. Um, that will be used to recruit very young men back into dissident groups who will believe that they're acting in some sort of defensive mechanism for their community. And does this all not sound very familiar? This all really sounds like what happened in this place in 1969. And I just don't think that anyone wants to go back there. But I do think that we're sleepwalking into that if people don't accept there's a, there's an issue here. There's an issue that needs sorted out. And I feel like sometimes I'm shouting into you know shouting into the wind and no one's listening. But there's an opportunity here to fix this. And if nobody steps in.
and fills that void. And politics is always the best way to fill it. If we fill the political void, well, then we stop those people who would want to send us back into violence from using very young people and use the fact that there's political instability to say, you know, well, we have to step in and fill this. You know, we're now the people, we're now defending our community. I really don't want to go back to what my job used to be. I really don't want to be reporting on innocent people being shot on their way to work in the morning. Alison Morris, security correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. Clips from the BBC. And if you're interested in this story and many, many others, you can find out more on belfasttelegraph.co.uk. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.